Welcome to the 29th episode of Coronavirus The Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, the past week has been the most lethal since the pandemic began. For the first time, we had days with over 4,000 deaths, more than double the number we saw prior to the recent holiday gatherings. We've seen hospitalizations at an all-time high of over 130,000 nationally and documented new cases exceeding 250,000 a day. And we know the real number of cases is most likely double that, or at least a half million newly infected individuals each day. Unfortunately, these horrific statistics are unlikely to return to where they've been in October and early November for several months. We're also doing poorly when it comes to administration of either of the two currently approved vaccines. To date, under 7 million doses have been given although more than 22 million doses have been sent out by federal officials. No one yet has taken responsibility for this huge gap in performance, with people blaming transportation issues, short staffing, and the holidays for the failure. All this was predictable a month ago, given the coming of winter and the certainty of when Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's would fall, and yet little was done in preparation and contingency planning. Already several hospitals in Southern California have talked about implementing mandatory triage to determine who will get treatment and whose life is of lesser importance and will be passed over. To me, the greatest failure was for residents of nursing homes. They account for at least 40% of deaths from COVID-19, but represent only two to 3% of the population. They should be the highest priority and the easiest to vaccinate. The residents are captive with the exact number known and their specific location certain on any day of the week. And on-site staff includes individuals capable of administering the vaccine. In under a half day, hundreds of vaccine doses could be given with trucks bringing the medication at specific times to waiting staff and local residents this would be the simplest and most straightforward group for vaccination, and yet it has not happened consistently. You know, Jeremy, when a freezer broke at a hospital in Northern California, local leaders realized they had two hours to administer over 800 doses before the vaccine went bad. They sprang into action, mobilizing people, and according to CNN, completed the administration without a drop wasted. As the expression goes, Vaccinating people is not neurosurgery. Most of the tasks involved are clerical, with the shot itself taking just a few seconds. 
and every year facilities do an almost exact replica of what was needed when they inoculate people against the flu. Facility administrators, health safety leaders, state elected officials, and federal government employees all have blame, and yet all point their finger at someone else. In the end, it doesn't seem to have mattered if the state was rural or more urban, if the governor came from one party or the other, failure has been the consistent outcome across the United States. Every time I think we've seen the greatest incompetence possible, an even worse outcome takes place. Any business that had such a dearth of strategic or operational efficacy would be bankrupt. In this case, the people making the errors and those paying the price are different, which may explain the relatively blasé attitude some people have shown about the failure in the first place. As someone once said, the difference between aviation's rate of increased safety and medicine's lack of progress reflects the fact that the pilot crashes with the plane. The vaccine rollout and administration is yet another scar on the performance of our country when it comes to COVID-19. Robbie, once again, our listeners to Coronavirus The Truth have demonstrated their depth of understanding about the current pandemic. A woman from Maryland asked us to clarify the changing thinking about getting the vaccine. She's heard that the government is recommending only one shot or maybe cutting the dose in half. And this is after we had heard that only two doses of the vaccine and then will it be effective. She asked, does this mean there have been problems with the vaccine? Jeremy, as is so often the case when it comes to COVID-19, the issues are multiple and complex. Let me untangle the nut. First, although there have been cases of severe allergic reaction to the vaccine, as we discussed in our last podcast, the total number remains very low. And that's not the issue driving the current debate. Instead, it's two other concerns. Let me begin by posing a thought question. Is the reason our nation is so far behind in vaccination compared to what had been projected a question of vaccine supply or vaccine distribution? You might say it seems obvious that it's the latter. Since earlier in the show, we said there were 22 million doses, but only 7 million given. But think about it. Does that mean there's only 7 million people in the U.S. wanting to take the vaccine last week? Of course, the answer is no. There were probably 100 million or more. So simultaneously, there were more than enough people wanting the vaccine and yet insufficient vaccine administration. It's what economists would call perceived shortage. Despite having enough drug to vaccinate 15 million more people than we did, we limited the administration of it to only hospital workers and nursing home residents, of which there were over 30 million individuals, but getting the vaccine to the right person was a large task. And as such, we had both an excess and shortage of the vaccine simultaneously. Part of the challenge, of course, is that the drugs, particularly the Pfizer one, needs to be given very quickly after it comes out of deep freezing. Had we told hospital workers and nursing home patients, the 30 million intended recipients, that they could schedule the shot and told anyone else that they could get the 
doses that were not used, that too would not have worked. Although, again, it sounds logical. There would have been a stampede for a very limited supply. As such, we're faced with the challenge of finding enough people who want the vaccine at any given time to use the doses quickly, and yet making sure that the vaccine that's available goes to the people at greatest risk. One or the other is straightforward, but accomplishing both has proven beyond people's ability to succeed. And this takes us to a second issue. With the virus having mutated to a more transmissible variant, as we discussed in last week's shows, there are fears that delays in vaccination could be extremely lethal and would likely overwhelm our stress and hospital system. And the reason is because if lots of people become ill, secondary to this more transmissible mutant variety, then by the time they get vaccinated, it obviously would be too late for a significant number of them. As such, the question is, which is greater, protecting the most vulnerable population, which are the people at highest risk, or vaccinating the greatest number of people, worrying that twice as many cases would lead to twice as many deaths. This conflict and priority led people to consider delaying the second dose so that twice as many people could be vaccinated or having the amount of vaccine administrated. Both have been shown to provide protection, but the data upon which it has been demonstrated so far is extremely limited. Phrased differently, the question people grappled with was the following. If getting only one dose or two half doses rather than two full doses would have, let's say, 80% efficacy, might the country be better off achieving lower mortality simply by doubling the number of people vaccinated, even if they're not the people at highest exposure? Unfortunately, there's a lot of hypotheticals in this question. We're not sure if the vaccine is 80% effective. And we're not sure how restrictive we would be and who might receive it. But if we could expand the population eligible, and if the alternative dosing and timing worked, then doing so statistically would be superior to what we're currently doing, even assuming perfect operational implementation of the vaccination plan, which is not happening. I hate to make things even more complicated, but they are. And that is that there's a worry about this virus mutating further before we reach herd immunity and therefore making it harder for the current vaccines to protect people. And again, there are two schools of thought. One is that the faster you immunize the population, the lower the risk. As such, you might consider having the dose or delaying the second shot. On the other hand, people worry that partially immunizing people could make it easier for mutant strain to take hold because it might be more transmissible than the degree of protection afforded. In the end, although some countries like Great Britain shifted their criteria, preferring to vaccinate twice as many people rather than half the number 
receiving two doses. The U.S. decided against that. Most likely, the drivers of that decision were wanting to avoid confusing people like this listener, undermining confidence for those at greatest risk, and a growing fear that those who received the first dose, if they're not brought back quickly for the second one, might decide to simply omit it. And that, they fear, would diminish long-term vaccine efficacy. Robbie, I have a couple of follow-up questions. First, how are other countries doing at uh, vaccinating their populations? Jeremy, overall, the numbers are not great, which is why Great Britain made the decision to give twice as many people one shot, rather than reserving the available vaccine to a very small number of individuals whom would optimally benefit from the two doses, but it would be hard to find them and coordinate it and make sure that the right people targeted were the ones who received the vaccine. Overall, most nations are around 1% of people vaccinated, 1% of the population being vaccinated. Although low, this number is double where the U.S. stands now. The exception to this difficulty in vaccinating people in a population is Israel, where the vaccination rate is around 15%. Diving deeper, once again, the explanation for their success is not 100% certain. One thing they have done is to loosen the criteria, giving anyone over the age of 60 the opportunity to be vaccinated. And remember from our show last week, the United States won't even get to people who are 65 until we get into the third round, which is likely not to happen until this spring. But also, Israel has a much better organized healthcare system with all citizens in a national database and individuals having to enroll in one of four healthcare delivery system options. As such, there's clear accountability for who's responsible for making certain that individuals at high risk receive their vaccine, And there's the opportunity to be able to better coordinate the delivery, distribution, and vaccination. The United States, once again, lags the rest of the world in the design and structure of our healthcare system. And this is an example of the consequences that happen from our fragmented approach to healthcare delivery in America. Second, what's the status of the other vaccines? Obviously, if there were more doses available, the U.S. could expand the population immunized faster. I'm hearing a lot of frustration with the distribution of the vaccine not going as quickly as hoped due to shortages, but also circumstances where places are having to throw out excess unused doses. What is going on? Let me take the second part first, and it follows up to what we've discussed already on this show. There is not a well-designed pre-thought plan for the process of transporting, distributing, and administering this vaccine. It's not that hard. It is made more difficult by the time constraints secondary to the low temperature required to preserve it. But it would not be that hard to bring the people 
to a site at a particular time, take the vaccine out, and administer it very quickly. This doesn't require doctors or even RNs to give the injections. And most of the time is spent on the paperwork, making sure you have the right patient, putting them into the database, making certain that the timing for the follow-up shot is set. This is just a lack of planning. I'm not sure what people were thinking would happen, but most individuals who understand healthcare system delivery expected that we would have a delay. We talked about it in previous shows. I think all that's surprising is how severe no one thought that only a third of the doses would be administered now by the second week into January. In terms of the vaccines itself, I don't see any of them becoming available very fast. But here's a rundown. One vaccine, the one manufactured by AstraZeneca, was just approved by regulators in the United Kingdom. However, the efficacy of this vaccine is significantly lower than the data from Pfizer and Moderna, a topic we covered in a previous show. And since most of the phase three testing was done on people under the age of 55, we don't have much data on the efficacy of this vaccine for those at greatest risk, the elderly. Furthermore, the trial of this vaccine was halted in the United States for several weeks due to a severe complication in one patient meaning that it will take longer before final numbers can be submitted to the FDA. It's unlikely approval will be granted until mid-spring, and that assumes the final analysis pushes the vaccine efficacy across the thresholds that the FDA has set for emergency use authorization. Another vaccine is the one from Johnson & Johnson. Their technology is somewhat different Then the two vaccines now approved, like the one from AstraZeneca, it uses an adenovirus to transmit the messenger RNA into people. Phase three trials are now fully enrolled with 45,000 participants. Hopefully we'll have data by the end of January on the safety and efficacy. And if it holds up, then we may see administration starting in the early part of 2021. The next two vaccines are very early in the approval process. The Novavax vaccine has only 1,000 participants so far, and the GlaxoSmithKline hasn't even started the final phase two trials and will not do that until February. For the most part, I think the two current vaccines are the ones that we will be utilizing As we discussed in this show, the manufacturers are pushing hard to get more doses available. My best guess is we're looking towards summer before the vast majority of the population has access to the vaccine and gains immunity against COVID. Robbie, a friend of mine told me he looks forward to the segment of our show where we discuss the positive developments since the last show. He said it's often the only upbeat news he hears in regards to coronavirus. What do you have for him this week? 
Jeremy, this week, we have double rewards for your friend. First, researchers in a paper published in the journal Science reported that they had shown in patients who had been infected with the coronavirus that their immune response lasted at least eight months and probably much longer. In their study, 90% of people had stable immunity when measured after recovery. As such, getting reinfected would be very rare, and when it occurs, it would be relatively mild. The immunity they showed was a combination of memory B cells that trigger the production of antibodies and killer T cells that work in parallel, and both have been shown to be present at the eight-month mark. The second optimistic finding came from Pfizer. Researchers tested the antibodies from people who had been vaccinated against the two most frequent mutant strains, the one from Britain and the one from South Africa. They found that at least in lab dishes, the antibodies obtained from people who had received the vaccine were able to fend off the virus by continuing to attach to the protruding spike proteins. These results, of course, are preliminary, and they've not been published in a peer-reviewed journal, and they are conclusive only about laboratory interactions. However, they are a second reason for optimism this week. Although we're marching down it very slowly, we're on a path as a nation and across the globe to successfully end the pandemic. And this research comes at a good time given that this new coronavirus strain has now been identified in numerous states across the United States. And as a result of its greatest transmissibility, it will likely become the dominant strain in our country, just as it has in England. I'm hearing more and more about those who are testing positive for COVID, but who are asymptomatic. It sounds like we're hearing public officials go back and forth on whether people can be positive and asymptomatic. Why is that? First, Jeremy, let me say there is no question that people can be infected with the virus and test positive and be asymptomatic. Now, there are two reasons why we're seeing higher rates of asymptomatic disease. The first is that an ever greater source of transmission are younger individuals, and a higher percentage of them are asymptomatic compared to older adults. You know, I laughed, Jeremy, at a paper published that showed that there was a higher disease incidence when college students returned to in-class education and fraternity parties. I'm not quite sure what the researchers were thinking. It seemed like a pretty obvious conclusion with 100% likelihood of happening. The second reason is that we're testing more people and therefore finding more asymptomatic cases. Early on, when there was a huge shortage of COVID tests available, asymptomatic people were rarely tested. And if you don't look for transmission, you'll rarely find it. In fact, researchers from the CDC using a case tracing model were able to show that 59% of cases today happen in people who are asymptomatic. That includes 
35% of cases in people who are asymptomatic because they have not yet developed the symptoms. They're going to, but they have not yet. But a whopping 24% from individuals who will never become symptomatic. There's no debate. I think the only question is the magnitude. And this report from the CDC tells us that it is high, which of course leads to the requirement of continued social distancing, mask wearing, and hand washing, and avoidance of large indoor gatherings. Jeremy, I just read a survey from the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is not connected with Kaiser Permanente. And in it, they compared the attitudes of people in more rural areas, such as Iowa, to those in urban centers relative to the coronavirus pandemic. And the differences they found were profound. Whereas 40% of people in urban areas will definitely take the vaccine, and only 15% said they definitely wouldn't. And of course, that was under the assumption that scientists had determined that the vaccine was safe and it was free for anyone who wanted it. But in rural parts of the country, only 30% said they would definitely take the vaccine under the same circumstances. And 20% said they definitely wouldn't. Furthermore, 50% of people in rural areas believe that the seriousness of COVID has been exaggerated compared to only 20% of people in urban settings who believe that the impact has been exaggerated. And 39% of rural residents say they're not worried about themselves or someone in the family getting sick versus only 23% of urban dwellers being this comfortable. Why do you believe this difference exists? And assuming we want everyone to be vaccinated, what should we do to gain the trust of people in rural areas of our country and encourage them to protect themselves, their families, and their friends? Robbie, I'll be completely honest with you and say that I'm still hesitant to take the vaccine. Uh, I know that might not be a popular thing to say, but I'm still a little uneasy about how quickly the vaccine came out and that we still have not necessarily seen the long-term impacts. Uh, You know, plus I'm in my 30s, I'm relatively healthy with no core morbidities. And, you know, I don't necessarily think I'm a priority for the vaccine anyway. But I think the differences between perceptions in rural and urban communities is this. One, it's significantly easier to social distance in rural areas. In fact, how I grew up on an acreage in the middle of nowhere on a gravel road, social distancing is just kind of how things are. Neighbors' houses are too far away to realistically walk to. You might see a handful of cars and tractors drive by each day. In fact, you know, social distancing where I live now in a town is more human contact than I would have in the summers as a kid when I didn't have school. That's just the way life is. People in rural areas love having these wide open spaces to enjoy. At my parents' house, I can literally walk out the back door and go fishing in their pond. Uh, To be honest... Everything going on in the world has made me miss many of the aspects of rural life, you know, minus the no options for true high-speed internet. Number two, in rural areas, you just don't see as many people. You see much less of the effects of the economic restrictions. You might only head into town once or twice a week to grab groceries uh, or whatever. You probably know uh, way less people that have had it and even less people, if any, that have died from it. Number three, 
rural areas are much more likely to be conservative and believe in the concept of American rugged individualism. Right now, many conservatives are distrusting of the media and the government. They see what's happening with the economic restrictions in places like California and New York and find that level of government control terrifying. I'm still friends with a lot of blue-collar and rural farmer conservatives, and they are some of the kindest, most hardworking, and smartest people I know. And through the work I've done with the podcast production company and being a podcast host, I've met some of the most intelligent and most interesting people in the whole world. And the people I went to church with as a kid in that middle-of-nowhere rural church are probably the kindest and most giving people I've ever met in my entire life. The problem is many rural and small town people feel like they're looked at by the media and by the government as uneducated simpletons. They often feel like they only matter to the government when politically convenient. Say, for example, in Iowa, before the caucuses, before the primaries, all the presidential candidates come here and talk to everybody. And then rural folks, who are the ones that keep our country fed, are looked at as an afterthought, treating them like they're not simpletons and that their opinions matter Uh, would go a long way towards gaining that trust. Make things like high-speed internet in rural areas a priority, and then treat them differently in the media. Those are the kinds of things that will gain that level of trust. Well, as someone who does live on the coast, Jeremy, let me say to any listeners that every time I eat my breakfast, lunch, or dinner, I'm grateful for all the people who raise and produce the food. I know that it takes a lot of hard work, and... Thank you for your efforts. Jeremy, you're an historian. When social scientists look back at events from the past, they often assign them far greater or lesser importance than people assume living at the time. Where do you believe historians will rank this pandemic 50 or 100 years from now? Robbie, I believe had this pandemic happened in, say, the 1500s, this virus would have been significantly worse. Modern medicine has helped us in a lot of ways. If many of the famous pandemics historically happened today, I believe they probably would have been less deadly than they were too. Again, due to modern medicine and our understanding of how viruses work being so different than it was in the past. If you look back in a few hundred years at this pandemic in terms of death toll and the severity of the disease compared to other historical pandemics, this one in my opinion, in relation to the total population affected, is definitely comparably mild. I think that this might sound terrible to say, but we are extremely lucky that we are not dealing with a pandemic that is significantly deadlier. There have been many way, way worse epidemics and pandemics in history. The bubonic plague killed an estimated 75 to 200 million people. The Spanish flu killed an estimated 50 million people. The plague of Justinian killed an estimated 25 million people. Right now, globally, the coronavirus pandemic is a little under 2 million deaths. What this current pandemic, in my opinion, is going to be remembered for is how the handling of it changed the world. The economic restrictions put into place to help prevent the spread have hurt and even destroyed many small to large businesses in the country and world. It has been a major factor in my opinion, in increasing the political and ideological tension and divide here in the United States. The mental health crisis from the lockdowns could be argued as a major factor in this division. When people see their jobs or businesses destroyed by no fault of their own, 
or they are told they cannot visit an elderly or dying relative in the hospital. They get angry. What we saw last week at the Capitol and over the summer after the George Floyd death was anger. I think a major factor in the severity of that anger in both cases is due to the effects of the pandemic and how it is being handled. We are seeing division in our country that we have not seen since the Civil War era, and that's scary. I don't know that anyone truly knows a way to heal the nation, and even if there is a good one at this point. It is looking ever more likely that China has a very good chance to leapfrog America as the world's top economic superpower, totally changing the world. These are the things I believe this pandemic will truly be remembered for. Robbie, we're approaching one year since the coronavirus pandemic began in the U.S. Countries around the world and states across the nation have taken different approaches with varying results. The time has come to put together what we have seen and what we have learned. What are your thoughts? Jeremy, there were multiple paths for success. Our nation failed to follow any of them. And we've paid a huge cost in terms of human life, economic health, social relationships, and education of the next generation. The blame, I believe, needs to be shared by three groups. Elected officials, policy experts, and hundreds of millions of Americans. Let me explain. Success in battling a viral pandemic requires multiple forces acting in concert and being coordinated. First, there needs to be a clear strategy coming from elected officials across the nation, and that did not exist. Second, as you've pointed out, there needs to be trust in the government and a willingness to follow the direction it sets, and that failed to happen. Third, there must be a willingness among policy experts to tell the truth and admit the limitations and create a path forward that aligns people with what they're willing to do, not what they theoretically should do, and that didn't occur. And finally, people need to be willing to commit to a national agenda and overcome their fatigue and discomfort, and that hasn't ensued. As a result, we lead the world in deaths, and we wandered month to month aimlessly with words and deeds that didn't align with people's actions. In contrast, the countries that have brought all of these forces together have done exceedingly well. And for our listeners who want to understand how large is this gap, let me give you a few examples. Taiwan went into an intense quarantine very early in the pandemic. They stopped the flow of people into the country by plane or boat. They paid stipends to people to make sure they adhered to public health recommendations around testing and quarantine and that they financially could afford to do so. They chose not to restrict businesses or schools. 
And the result has been one death in Taiwan for every three million people. Phrased differently, fewer deaths last year, an entire year in Taiwan, than the United States currently has every five minutes. In contrast, South Korea took a different strategic approach. The nation kept its borders open, but it used phone, credit card, and social media data to actively track down all infections. And the country imposed strict testing, quarantine, and isolation requirements on its people. The mortality there has been one death per 60,000 people. Once again, phrasing it in terms of national numbers, the total number of deaths in a year was less than what the U.S. experiences now every four hours. Unlike both of these Asian nations, with traditional cultures and experience with mandatory mask wearing and a willingness to follow government leads and accept privacy limitations, New Zealand took a different approach. It imposed a mandatory lockdown with the explicit goal of eliminating the virus from the country's shores. And it did that. And the mortality it has is one death per 220,000 people, or total deaths from COVID last year equal to the U.S. mortality every hour and a half. Here you have three success stories with the lives saved being massive compared to the U.S. One nation goes into complete shutdown. A second closes its borders but leaves society alone. A third focuses on aggressive tracking, contact tracing, and government-imposed restrictions on people who test positive or at high risk for coming down with COVID. In contrast, the U.S. talked a good game. In reality, we did little. The message from Washington, D.C. was ambiguous and contradictory. But even in a state like California, that implemented a strict and rigid system of requirements and restrictions, the result has been disastrous. The mortality in California now exceeds 25,000 people. That's 10 times more than the total number of deaths from the three nations Taiwan, South Korea, and New Zealand combined. L.A. County alone is at over 10,000 deaths with no end in sight. What's clear is that there's no single best plan for a nation to follow responding to a viral pandemic, but there are several bad ones. Not having a clear strategy and well-understood expectations fails. Having a clear plan that people fail to adhere to fails as well. Telling people to quarantine after interstate travel with no effort to monitor and enforce it fails it. And we did all three. We had government saying that people were mandated to take certain actions when everyone knew that's not what they were doing. And the best plan without implementation, always fails. On this podcast, we said that this virus exposed its cards early in the pandemic. 
and has since then marched forward on a clear, consistent, and deadly path. In response, some elected officials have pretended that the end is in sight when it was far away. Other policy experts have talked about specific restrictions being able to control the virus, but have simply ignored the unwillingness of people to do so. They've talked about the need for more testing and contact tracing when the number of cases was so high, it would be impossible to accomplish. Instead of having a clear strategy that was well implemented, we closed schools, we bankrupted businesses, and little evidence that we saved many lives Absolutely, had we done what we said, far fewer people would have died. But the best strategy without implementation invariably fails. There were many paths we could have followed that would have protected Americans and avoided the over half million deaths that have occurred by the time our nation will be fully vaccinated. We chose as a country the ones destined for failure, and we've reaped what we've sowed in Washington, D.C., in all 50 states, and from families everywhere. And all of that, of course, has happened before the more transmissible mutant has reached our shores. Jeremy, I'm optimistic we'll put this pandemic behind us. But the consequences in terms of emotional loss, educational hardship, financial ruin and social dysfunction, the ones you mentioned earlier in your response to my question about historians, will remain with our country for decades, if not generations into the future. Like you, I believe this will be the legacy of the current viral pandemic. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, visit a contact page on our website and send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.